Our text for the first service is Luke 3, verse 22b. I'll begin reading at verse 21. But the text is just the tail end of that section. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And then come, comes the text. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The sermon in a nutshell is contained in that little thematic summary. When we remember our baptism in faith, God will give us the grace to live out of the certainty of the Father's love for us. So uh, children, and everybody actually, if you memorize that sentence, then you will remember the heart of the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you wake up in the morning, what tends to be some of the first thoughts that you think about? And whatever you think about, consciously think about, you may even park there with your thoughts. The thoughts may be a burden to you, maybe a challenge that you're facing, but whatever you are thinking about, how does that shape the rest of the day? Let me ask you, do you ever think of your baptism? within the first five minutes of your having woken up. And then thinking about your baptism during those first five minutes, how do you think that might shape the rest of your day? You remember, of course, what remembering does. When we remember something sad about the past, what happens to us? We tend to become sad again in the present. And when we remember a joyful thing of the past, it'll probably bring a big smile to your face and you'll relive some of the joy that you experienced in the recent past or the distant past. And when you remember an embarrassing thing from the past, you probably will feel some of the shame in the present again. See, that's what the faculty of remembering does. It is a powerful force in our lives 
that shapes how we experience the present. Now, it is the same with remembering our baptism, especially the heart of our baptism, our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. The more that we consciously remember that we have died with Christ and that we have arisen with Christ to a new life, the more the act of remembering this particular point of the Christian faith will become a powerful force in our lives. And it will shape and form how you and I experience our lives in the present. Our text is also about baptism. More precisely, it is about Jesus' baptism. John the baptism, with his preaching, had been used by the Holy Spirit to arouse a mass movement among the Jews in Israel. And masses of people had come to John at the Jordan River to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. And along comes Jesus, John's cousin. And Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me too. Now, in a little bit later, John will be saying to the people, See, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John knew who Jesus was. So John shies away from baptizing the one whom he knew was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. But Jesus says, no, John, I need to be baptized, just like all the other people. And as Jesus arises out of the Jordan River in a posture of prayer, a piece of the sky is torn to the side like you open a curtain and out of the hole in the curtain, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in what looked like a dove. It wasn't quite a dove, but very similar to a dove. And the voice of the Father was heard saying to Jesus and to all those around, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, why would the Father be so well pleased with Jesus, who had just been baptized? Well, the significance of Jesus' baptism is that Jesus had just publicly begun his public ministry. He was around 30 years old. And before that time, it was all private. 
was no public ministry. Even though at a, as a 12-year-old or whatever the age, 13, he was in the temple, you know, and he went to the, the scribes and he manifested his, the depth of his knowledge, that really was not his public ministry. His public ministry began here when he was about 30. And the very first thing that is part of the beginning, the official beginning of Jesus' public ministry, is that he identifies himself with sinful Israel and is baptized just like a sinful Israelite, even though he himself was without sin. And in doing so, he was manifesting himself publicly as Israel's representative and substitute. The two are not the same. When we speak about Jesus being Israel's representative, it's like the captain of the team. Now, I don't know a whole lot about sports, a little bit. But I do know, at least in my days, when I was young, the two captains of a team would meet at the center field. And they would talk about a few things with the ref. You can't, of course, have the whole team, both teams going up to the center. So these two captains, they represent their respective teams. And whatever they're doing there with the ref and talking about, they're doing this for their teams. And the members of the team are included in what the captains are saying there. So when I speak about Jesus being our representative, I'm drawing attention to the inclusive element of Jesus' ministry. That we are included in what Jesus did. But when we speak about Jesus being our substitute, that draws attention to the exclusive elements of Jesus' ministry. Not that we're not included, because Jesus is always a representative and a substitute. So whatever he does, you're always included. But when we call him a substitute, it draws attention to the unique, exclusive, in that sense, the unique elements of Jesus' public ministry. Things that you and I can't do, just like a substitute batter. You're on a baseball team, and the pitcher is left-handed, and the coach knows that you don't bat very well against a left-handed pitcher. And it's in the ninth inning, and the score is tied, and there's someone on third base. What does the coach do? He takes a substitute batter. That draws attention to the exclusive element. You, you can't do that. Only this, hopefully, anyway, we hope that the substitute batter will do what you can't do. Now with Jesus, you don't have to hope that. We know that he will do what you and I can't do. So one draws attention to, I'm included, and the other element draws attention to the unique and exclusive elements that Jesus does things that you and I can't do. I mean, can you bear the wrath of God 
against the sins of the whole human race? You can't do that. Can you perfectly keep the Ten Commandments? You can't do that. He does it as your substitute, but also as your representative. So in that sense, you are included, because he did it for you. And Jesus will now do, as Israel's substitute and representative, what the people of Israel can do. And what was the function of Israel in the Old Testament? Why did God call Abraham? Why did God call the Israelites out of Egypt? Why did he give Israel the Ten Commandments? If you keep my commandments, you will be my treasured possession. You will be my holy nation. You'll be for me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They represent God to the people. Israel is supposed to represent God to the nations. And priests also represent the people to God. So Israel represents the nations to God. And in doing so, Israel was supposed to show just how beautiful life with God is when it is lived in submission to the Ten Commandments. And in doing so, God called Israel to deal with the problem of sin in the world. And you look at the Old Testament, and Israel didn't do a very good job. So God becomes human. God becomes a Jew. God becomes an Israelite, the perfect Israelite, and he's going to do for Israel and in Israel's place, the substitute battered, what Israel was supposed to do. And in order to equip Jesus for this stupendous task, out of this hole in the sky, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and equips Jesus for being Israel's representative and substitute. Now, a book I read a while back, which really shaped the sermon, suggested that you would have expected Jesus, or the Father, to say this, that he is the Father's beloved Son. For instance, at the end of Jesus' ministry, For instance, when Jesus said on the cross, and I think we're in the second Sunday of Lent, right? So we're working towards Easter. And on the cross, Jesus says, It is finished. Imagine if the heavens would have been opened there and the voice of the Father would have been heard saying to Jesus as he uttered these words, Good boy, Jesus, because you, you finished your ministry. Now I'm going to let you know you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It didn't happen there. 
Or imagine when Jesus had done something spectacular. Standing at the mouth of Lazarus' grave. And he says, Lazarus, come out! Lazarus, you know, with these rags still kind of on him, he comes out of the grave. And the heaven would have torn apart and the Father's voice would have been heard saying, Good boy, Jesus. Great that you did that. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Didn't happen then. It happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It happened one more time on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that would be a topic for another sermon, so I'm not going to get into that. It happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And why would that be the case? And the author of the book, actually it was just one chapter in a book, but it just struck home with me and I ran with the idea. The author of the book says, the Father did this so that Jesus could live out of the certainty of the Father's love for him every day again. Before he had done anything else after his baptism. So that Jesus would know that he didn't have to do anything to gain the Father's love. Like, I got to be good. I got to do it right. If I don't do it right, the Father's not pleased with me. It doesn't go that way. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus could live out of the certainty of the Father's love for him. Didn't have to gain the Father's approval. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the encouragement this must have been for the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the Holy Spirit who descended on Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism, what did this Holy Spirit do immediately after that? He drove Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. See Jesus in the desert. If you are the Son of God, you can take these little, little stones like that, that look like a little, little cake of bread, turn it into. Jump off the temple, Jesus. Everybody will believe you are the Messiah. Bow before me, Jesus. You don't have to go for the cross then. See, Jesus would only become Lord of the world if he would die on the cross. But Jesus, Jesus, I can give you all the kingdoms. And you don't have to die. You don't have to bear the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. You won't have to sweat with sweat coming like blood out of your body in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can avoid all of that, Jesus. And Jesus knows himself for whom he is. He knows that he is the Father's beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And so as he's in the desert for 40 days, 
and 40 nights. And as the full brunt of the devil's temptations are felt in his soul, Jesus can live out of the certainty of the Father's love for him. And what Jesus could experience in the desert, he could experience during the rest of his public ministry. Was Jesus opposed a lot? Yeah, he was. Was Jesus criticized a lot? Yeah. Do you like to be criticized? No, you don't. Do you like to be opposed? You know, it's so easy when people oppose you that you're going to change your position so that they're going to like you, right? Jesus was opposed and Jesus was criticized. And these Pharisees and the scribes are always, you know, setting up traps for Jesus. In my mind, I always compare them to the journalists of today. You know, they stick a microphone under your chin and they just hope you'll put your foot in your mouth. And it's all over the news and all over the papers, right? That's what, that's what these leaders are doing with Jesus. Would you like that if it happened to you? You wouldn't. And during all of that, Jesus could live out of the certainty of the Father's love for him. Hey guys, no matter what you think, no matter how you want me to change, no matter how you want me to gain your approval, pardon the bad English, I ain't going to do it. I'm going to stick to my guns. I know who I am. And that gives stability and strength to my life. Every time, Jesus could say to himself, every time I remember my baptism in the River Jordan, power goes forth in the very act of remembering. And I remember what the Father said to me. And I receive strength. Strength for fulfilling my public ministry. You know what? See, time is moving on. What the Father said to Jesus, He also says to you. By virtue of your and my union with Christ. So Jesus is the Father's beloved Son, and you, you, are the Father's beloved son and daughter. How do we know that? Well, because of our union with Christ. I may have used this example with you once before, but the children among us, if you could perk up your ears for a minute, you ever draw a little picture of the high priest? The clothing of the high priest? And remember the ephod that he wore? You remember what an ephod was? It was like a little vest, right? Just say this was the ephod, eh? Like a little vest. So I'm going to tighten it up like this. And then in the ephod, in the vest, what else did he have? It was something called a breastplate, right? A breastplate. And, and how many stones 
where they're in the breastplate. How many? Twelve stones, right? How many tribes did you have? Twelve. So all Israel was represented in the high priest. Okay? As we are in Christ, so all Israel was in the high priest. So here's the high priest, you know, doing his business among Israel. And who's included in what the high priest does for all Israel? All Israel is included. And when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on the great day of atonement, making atonement for the sins of Israel, who's included in that? By virtue of their union with the high priest, all Israel is included. So that's a little Old Testament metaphor image of being in Christ. As all Israel was in Christ, so the whole congregation is in Christ. So, when Jesus went down in the waters of baptism, who went down with Jesus? All Israel. And the church is the extension of Israel. Right? We're the wild olive shoots who are grafted into Israel. So, we went down with Jesus, and when Jesus comes up out of the water, who comes up out of the water with Jesus? All Israel. The whole church. And when the heaven is opened, and the voice of the Father says, with you I am well pleased, and you know that you are in Christ, who does, who does the Father say that to? Not just to Jesus. He says it to all who are in Jesus. Israel. The church is the expansion of Israel. He says it to us too. And as the Father said this to Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, so the Father says this to you and me at the beginning of our lives. So that as Jesus didn't have to do anything to gain the Father's approval, so you and I don't have to do anything to gain the Father's approval. You already have it in Christ. Can you imagine the difference that this makes when you get up in the morning? You have this challenge. Somebody else has that challenge. The third one has a sorrow, a huge sorrow in their life. And another one is going through excruciating pain, either physically, emotionally, or psychologically. And you wake up in the morning, and within the first minute, all of that stuff, all of that stuff just barrels down into your consciousness. And you think to yourself, oh, how am I going to make it through the day? And then, then you remember your baptism. You remember that as the Father said to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He said it to you and to me. And we allow that to shape our day. We don't deny our pain. We don't deny our sorrow. 
We don't live a life of denial. That's not what this is about. This is about first things first, allowing ultimate reality to shape immediate reality and experiencing the mystery of the presence of God in our lives as we deal with the challenges of living as broken people in a broken world. The elder prayed for husbands and wives. My wife and I were married 47 years in August. Rest assured, I know the ups of marriage and the downs of marriage. I know the joys and the struggles of marriage. Can you imagine marriages who allow ultimate reality to shape immediate reality and say to themselves, when the marriage is going through a difficult time, well, I am the Father's beloved child. In whom he is well pleased. I'm talking as a male now. And then I say, but my wife, my wife is also the Father's beloved child. In whom he is well pleased. Uh, dear friends, turn your marriage upside down. And children, uh, I had four siblings. I still have four siblings. Generally, we got along. But sometimes we didn't get along. Can you imagine, children, when you remember that your brothers and sisters, and you too, are God's beloved child, in whom he is well pleased. How do you think that would form and shape your life in your family? Dealing with siblings when they get kind of nasty with you. Huh? And brothers and sisters, the communion of the saints. The interesting thing about the congregation is that you didn't pick each other. God brought you together. And there's always people in the church that you are not naturally attracted to. But they are your brother and sister in the local congregation. That can be a challenge. Uh, by the way, just as it can be a challenge for me, I might not be a person whom someone is naturally attracted to, right? So we're both wearing the same shoes, right? And God puts us together in the communion of the saints. And then we remember that everybody, everybody in the church is God's beloved child in whom he is well pleased. Oh, pretty different in the church then than in the world. And you bear witness to that, to one another and to the world. And say, yeah, even though we don't have a natural liking to each other, we still like each other, and we love each other, and we live for the other, and we seek the good of the other. Because they're in Christ, and I'm in Christ. Just 
case we forget this. God has given us the sacrament of holy baptism to remind us of this. And I'm speaking about infant baptism here now. You, you could say the same thing about believer's baptism, but I have to adjust it a little bit. But most of us here were baptized as infants. Now, I don't know how many people are here, 200 or so. And 200 people have all been baptized in the church. And you know, little kid, I have children. I know what they're like. They can't do a whole lot. They've done really nothing insignificant. They can dirty their diaper, and they can drink their milk. They work a little bit, you know. Smile with their lips, you know. That's about it. And they're held at the baptismal font for baptism. And the first word of grace that is pronounced over these children, before they've done anything significant, is, you are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. Johnny and Sally don't have to earn or gain the Father's favor. They have it from the beginning of their lives. And now they can live out of the certainty of being the Father's beloved children. And allow that to shape their lives every time they remember their baptism. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for those encouraging words you spoke to the Lord Jesus at his baptism. And because you did, our Savior could live his life out of the certainty of your love for him. Thank you that because of our union with Christ, you also spoke those words to us. Because you did, we can always live our lives out of the certainty that we are your beloved children in whom you are well pleased. And Father, thank you that the sacrament of baptism is a visible reminder of this fact. Help us now to use the sacrament on a regular basis by remembering what it symbolizes and in doing so, have it shape our day and our lives in the midst of the struggles and challenges we face. And Father, this Afternoon, we remember the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. It has been two years since the violence began, and yet the suffering continues. We lift up to you all those who have been affected by this war, the victims, the displaced, and the families torn apart. 
Father, grant wisdom and compassion to leaders and decision makers involved in the conflict. May they seek peaceful resolutions and work towards reconciliation. May justice prevail. In Jesus' name, amen.